Greetings and welcome to your Afrofuturist podcast. My name is Ahmed Best. Thank you so much for being here and joining us today. We have a fantastic, fantastic show today. If there's anyone that embodies what Afrofuturism is, could, and should be, it is our guest today, Dr. Natrice Gaskins. She is a phenomenal artist, uh, an amazing educator, and um, she really focuses on the STEAM fields and explores techno-vernacular creativity. We're going to get into that in the podcast. She talks all about her philosophy. She talks all about how she got into the field, um, how uh, she uses technology, and um, specifically where she's going now with artificial intelligence, machine learning, and the ability to create Afrofuturist and Afrofuturism images through these means and collaboration. Dr. Gaskins um, has taught in the Boston Public Schools and in Massachusetts College of Art and Design. Dr. Gaskins is the Assistant Director of the Leslie Steam Learning Lab at Leslie University. Her book, Techno Vernacular Creativity and Innovation, will be published through the MIT Press. And just her thought process, her thinking, the way she goes about creating what she creates and how she uses art as a way in to young people using code and programming language. She has a, a, a very deep love for music, uh, hip hop. She uses a lot of hip hop in her labs to teach uh, underserved communities how to code. Um, and you know, much like myself, she uses hip hop as a as a as a perfect way to talk about how how we define ourselves as artists in creative space. Um, she's was an absolute joy to talk to. I learned so much from this interview, and um, please, please enjoy Natrice Gaskins. You can find her at natricegaskins.com where all things Natrice Gaskins are. Uh, please do yourself a great, great service and um, find out what she's going to and pick up her book when it comes out. Okay, without further ado, it is Dr. Natrice R. Gaskins on the Afrofuturist Podcast. Dr. Gaskins, welcome to the Afrofuturist Podcast. It's really great um, to talk to you. Like I said, I'm a I'm a big fan of yours. Um, I've been uh, a fan of yours for for quite a long time. I'm gonna jump right in, um, and and I, I'd, I'd like to get to the autobiographical stuff a little bit later. Sure. But um, uh, the first question that I'd like to ask you um, has a lot to do with your work as an educator and as an artist, and um, looking at algorithms and how algorithms work in our world and representation. And it seems like algorithms and and your work as far as like getting young people to invest in STEAM has a lot to do with social justice. So how how should we view algorithms as social justice or through the social justice lens? Sure. Um... So when you think about social justice, we think about um, liberation, but we also think about equity. Mm -hmm. um, and I went to the White House for a Nation of Makers 
convening um, when Obama was still in office and his staff defined equity in a way I liked in terms of uh, three things, access, um, inclusion and diversity. So who's in the room, who feels welcome and who has the keys. And so I kind of like that as a way of describing that because we oftentimes talk about technology or science or engineering from the um, in terms of who feels welcome maybe or even who um, who's in the room. Um, but we never talk about who has the keys. Hmm. Um, like who are who are the gatekeepers? Who are the people who stamp something as valid? Um, who are the people who um, say, okay, that is credible. That is something that is science. That is something that's engineering. We don't often talk about engineering and Grandmaster Flash, but he studied engineering and he applied it to his practice. So he's a self-taught engineer. Yes. But why don't we talk about that from an engineering standpoint, what he was doing, how he was um, re-engineering things. We don't ever talk about it until recently. And so there are plenty of other people. I was just listening to actually reading, um, there's this uh, group called Drexia that I've been into for a long time. And I was reading um, a interview with uh, one of the members who's still living. Um, and in the interview, it's a long interview with Gerald Donald. He is has moved on from science fiction to science. Mm -hmm. um, he won't talk about race, he won't talk about um, things that people immediately tie something to. He wants to talk about, if he does talk about Drexia, he talks about it in terms of marine science. He wants to talk about how waves sound, right. how, you know, he doesn't want you to, he doesn't want to get into many of the conversations that people get mired in as it relates to race and class. He wants to talk about what they were thinking about when they produced the albums that they produced um, in the 90s. And I like that. I think sometimes some people, I mean, I like talking about race, um, but a lot of people, it, it, it obscures what they're trying to do with their art. Right. And I think it could be said about algorithms. When we think about algorithms, that's something that the people that have pocket protectors who sit in a um, in their you know windowless room or with the heavy curtains and they you know do code coding and programming and that's their thing. But we never talk about what it is and how it might manifest itself in culture. Yeah, um, absolutely. And how, because of it, it makes a lot of things computational, mm -hmm. just like engineering and hip hop. Um, so from a social justice standpoint, because we never talk about these things, we're never talking about ourselves as the people who have the keys. Right. And you mentioned Flash. You know, I'm from the Bronx. I grew up in the Bronx in the mm -hmm. 70s and 80s. And I remember when Flash would come to my block and do mm -hmm. parties at this park across the street from my block. And, and you know, as you mentioned, he was an electrical engineer. And mm -hmm. um, for power, they used to jack into the streetlights. Right. They would just take the their their parents like amplifiers, jack into the streetlights, and that's how they would get electricity to their turntables. And as a kid, I never really thought twice about that. I was just like, oh, that's how they're getting power. I wasn't actually thinking that, oh, that's actually a, an interesting bit of science that Flash did. And, you know, him inventing the crossfader and and no one really talking about that. Like no one really talking about how brilliant and how that changed music, you know? Um, 
we all talk about what he played and how he played it, but we're not talking about the method in which he brought the actual physical sound to us. What do you think that is? Like, why don't we appreciate both sides? And this kind of goes to the steam conversation. What is it about us that doesn't recognize um, the, the science and the art at the same time? Well, I think there's a dominant culture, there's a dominant narrative, there's a dominant way of looking at, you know, STEM and STEAM. And I think that a lot of it is coming from a lot of Western tropes and ideas and concepts, not non-Western, which is a different way of looking at things. And um, for example, I got into this argument with the professor at the University of uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis about prints. Mm -hmm. And this kind of relates to algorithms, but Prince, I felt in my essay that I wrote for this book that's going to soon come out at some point, that Prince was improvising with the devices in 777-9311. Yes. So my entire essay is wrapped around this idea of his improvisation. So this professor who is in Minneapolis and knows the Minneapolis sound and is very factory produced is like, there's no improvisation in that. I've listened to that song 20 million times and I have not heard any improvisation I said, well, no. And then I said, well, Questlove does this red DJ thing and he's a drummer and mm -hmm. he talks about Prince is always uh, messing with the tempo. Um, and then, okay, he's like, okay, I listen to that I, on YouTube. I listen, you know, I do that. And then I found a YouTube video of the dude that plays the drums in that song talking about, yeah, we did something different. We improvised. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, why couldn't he hear it? Mm. He said he had heard everything I was talking about in the essay. He had heard it. He just wasn't getting it. And then when I sent him the link to the actual drummer who says, yeah, we use machines, but I, we were tasked to improvise with the rhythm pattern from the machines for that particular song, that ended the argument. Yeah. But my question in my head is why couldn't he hear it? Why couldn't he recognize that there was something different happening in the song like I heard it? Um, he had to, you know, I actually had to find the actual musician who played it, who said, yes, we improvised um, on that album. It's because, uh, and then there's another um, couple of interviews I heard Pino Palladino was talking about mm -hmm. how, and, and Questlove talking about how D'Angelo yeah. would oftentimes turn the machine off and um, in a similar way of Jay Dilla and turn off the quantizing. So it was just what was the patterns that they were producing, not the machine patterns, but there was a uh, obviously some building on that uh, machine, but at some point they left it and it was always behind the beat. So all the instruments had to go behind the beat. Yeah. So that improvisational aspects was very key to the sound that D'Angelo was producing with Sopino as a bassist is talking about how we always had to play behind the beat. Questlove is saying he had to retrain himself to play for voodoo because he was playing according to the quantizer, to the beat. Yeah. And not to something else. And and, and the, the last the only two people he could think of who did that, they were professional musicians with D'Angelo and Jay Dilla. Right. So there's Jay Dilla, that's another engineer who was mm -hmm. a musician. And you know, it's interesting you talk about sampling and and the quantizing and in the, the samplers, you know, quantizing it when when sampling first started, quantizing was about being with the clock, with the time clock. And then they recognized all these hip hop producers 
um, turning off the quantize, and then they created smart quantize, which quantizes behind the beat, mm -hmm. right? And then they created swing quantize. And it's interesting that the culture was driving the technology, mm -hmm. you know, because hip hop was swung, because it was behind the beat, the, um, the, the manufacturers of the hardware and the software had to create a way to match the 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 style with the clock and you know it's it's interesting what you're saying because it it seems like we don't culturally look at our artists who are doing digital art digital media as the um the you know the convergence of science and art and, you know, I was watching something where you had Hank Shockley at your lab mm -hmm. and you created pretty much like a, a, a tone generator with a, a piece of wood. Mm -hmm. And that brought people that brought the people in your lab in and recognized, oh, actually, this is science and art combined. And I remember when I was coming up um, in New York in the 90s, which brought like CD quality music to your bedroom. Now, all of a sudden you had all of these, you know, young musicians creating all of these brand new sounds in their homes, but it never jumped off like Silicon Valley jumped off. Like we don't think about, you know, the, the MPC innovators, like we think about the software innovators, like mm -hmm. the Steve Jobs innovators. What are some steps that we can do and we could take to start thinking that way, to change the culture into thinking that way? I mean, it starts with education. I mean, I I like getting into arguments like with professors, but also with students. I think they are, if their minds are bent around it if they think it's something that's important. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'll, you know, talk about Afrofuturism. I said into an entire room for a ninth grader, oh, ninth and 10th graders, you know, how many people in here know that John Coltrane studied quantum physics? Yeah. Nobody. And yet the music majors, and this is the high school for the arts, Mm -hmm. The music majors all had to play John Coltrane's Giant, Spits, Giant Steps. Yep. They all knew it, but they did not realize that he was studying quantum physics to write that song. Mm -hmm. And so one of my independent study students who is a musician and I'm friends with today, very talented, traveled with Wooden um, Marsalis at some point in his high school career, said that's not true. So I found the actual text, quote, Coltrane talking about quantum physics blew his mind. Now, I'm not saying that the music teacher had to say, we have to study quantum physics to read and understand this song, but it does place it in a different light, the same way Gerald Donald was trying to do it, who from Drexia. As it relates to algorithms, there's something about the middle passage and its impact on the way we create in, in the United States and now throughout the world that's very different from Western ideas of sound, of science, of technology. And it's something that shows up in the music, but it also shows up in the visuals. Mm -hmm. And um, so James Need, I always go back to him because he wrote an essay in the eighties um, and he's long gone, but he was at Yale and wrote an essay in the eighties about that difference. He looked at the Western way of things, the philosophies, the concepts around uh, time and sound and literature and then he wrote about Coltrane and Toni Morrison and James Brown. 
the James Brown part, he looks at a particular song, the first funk song, which is called Sweat. Mm -hmm. And he writes about it in notation. He'll, he breaks down the ABC pattern, the actual patterns he hears when he listens to Cold Sweat. That's improv, you know, it's repetition, it's improvisation, something he calls the cut, this disruption in a sequence, mm -hmm. like, and it's looping thing that happens. So he's writing about that about Cold Sweat. So I said, the way he's writing it looks like code. It's like, it looks like a, it's like a programming language. It looks, that's what it looks like to me from someone who does that. So I said, at some point I was doing some music visualization. I said, well, what happens if I put cold sweat and a basic pattern into the visualizer? What does it produce? So that's one. And so that's something I did later after, you know, a couple few years after that, reading that essay. But also I was reading essays about um, scholars that are talking about African-American quilt making and how the patterns were similar to the, the polyrhythms in hip hop, R&B, and blues and so on. So, so they're saying the visual patterns match the music patterns. Mm. So what happens if I put the, the cold sweat in the visualizer, it was producing the same patterns in the quilts. Wow. Yeah. So there's something very specific about going behind the beat, about the polyrhythms, that, but there's also something that's about the sense of disruption, this cut that James Snead is talking about in a sequence. That's very technical, but it's also very cultural and gets passed down. So how does it get passed down? Of course it gets passed down if we hear the music, but some people hear the music and don't hear what I hear. Yeah. Um, so uh, Chanda um, Weinstein, there was a talk uh, with uh, Ruha Benjamin and a few other people about time in a couple of weeks ago. And in the Q&A type, they asked, how do we get that? Where do we pick that up? And she said, when we were children. Yeah. So I remember my mother, the Jackson Fives went on is the kitchen and she would do the bump. I didn't like it. She did the bump with me to like ABC or I think it was Dancing Machine. Yeah. But she would do the bump with me and she's like, when they're dancing and it was a, it was a beat. It was a embodied um, sense of rhythm that I was picking up even though I wasn't really paying attention. So we do pick that up and it becomes something that becomes ingrained. So it eventually gets into our music it gets into the way we create and it gets passed along. But what's important is that I could talk about James Brown and the computation of James Brown songs that a computer scientist could understand what I'm talking about when it relates to computation and computer science. Right. So kids will make that jump. So if I give students, so I taught AP computer science and the students, most the unusual part of my class is most of them were girls and most of them are musicians. So when I gave them data, uh, a data project, I said, you could do whatever creatively you want, but you had to show that you understand data um, and information. They would take the data that they were looking at, bar charts and so on and numbers and compose to it. Word. So high notes were the high parts of the bar and they would just compose because that's what they do. And I said, so they just did what the music visualizer does, but they did that with their own knowledge and their ability to compose. So, and they didn't know that there was a visualizer. They didn't realize that. So there's something, when I talk about algorithms, I'm talking about algorithms in, in culture, algorithms in the way we produce, the way we communicate. So there's science that shows that when jazz musicians and rappers, when they're rapping the music or they're making music, that it's like a lang it's like a having communication, call and response. There's always the conversation happening. So, um, James Brown's band would lay down cold sweat, most of it, and then he would come in and, and put something over it, and that would be the song. 
Thelonious Monk will do the same thing. You go ahead and lay it down. Then I'm going to come in there and do my thing on top. Right. And that knowledge of that computational knowledge, that computational thinking is something we do all the time. But because people don't hear it because they're thinking about it from a linear standpoint or from some other kind of lens, they miss these intricate, detailed nuances that are in, um, you know, black and brown people's culture. Right. Were you always an Afrofuturist or would you always like, did you, did you find, and, and I don't mean just the term, I just mean like the, 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 the definition behind it, the thinking behind it, was that always something that you had from, from, you know, your childhood or was it something that you found and just fell in love with? So my mother was a computer programmer, but she was really into science fiction. So I didn't understand a lot of, I didn't understand to, you know, um, the Kubrick movies until I was an adult, but she would watch it. And I'm like, I don't know what that is, but it was around me and her computer programming was around me. I didn't like any of it, but it was, it, I was, uh, you know, absorbing it um, like a sponge, whether I liked it or not. Um, I, you know, my first art project that I remember getting positive feedback on was kindergarten, first grade kindergarten. Um, I was going to do, we we're going to learn to do paper mache. And I did a heffalump from the um, uh, Winnie the Pooh Disney movie because I was into that. I was into Disney and then these polka dot and pat plaid elephants were just so cool to me. It was very LSD, whatever, but I didn't know what that was. It just, you know, I don't know if you remember, but it was just very. So I did a paper mache, you know, blue and pink polka dotted heffalump and it was the teacher was like oh my god she just did it. and it was so much that she brought it up like a parent's day look at this thing and like put it up and and I said well there must be something that's cool about what I did um but the fact that I did that I didn't just do a butterfly which I loved and I did something that was kind of otherworldly very a psychedelic um yeah. and I'm like first grader um, right. And it's always kind of been that way. I was like, how do I, you know, where, where, and it was just part of, you know, watching things like inner space. I'm thinking about that with Dennis Quaid and say Martin Short. Martin Short, yeah. Um, watching those things made me think about, you know, stuff that's not just in front of me, but it's beyond me um, and my art and being creative. And so it's always kind of been there. So, when did you make the choice to combine your computer science knowledge and background with your art background and make work? Well, I didn't, um, I had decided as a kid that nobody really understood what my mother was talking about when she talked about what she did at her job. Mm -hmm. And so I decided I'm not going to, nobody understands what she's talking about. It wasn't embarrassment. It was just more like disappointment. Like why she seems, seems cool, but nobody seems to understand what she's talking about when she talks about what she does. So I'm not doing that. So I'm just going to be an artist. And so my ceramics teacher, who I'm still friends with today in high school, she was like, oh, Natrice, you know, we got this computer graphics class. Um, I'm like, computers, no thanks. And, you know, she asked me more than once and she's like, uh, listen, seriously, I'm handpicking some juniors to take this class. I'm like, why? You know, I'm good. You know, I'm going to go. So um, because I have respect for the teacher and also she seemed to be very intent on getting me in this class and I needed, I needed the elective, which she also knew. You need the elective. So 
whatever. But that's the first time I ever worked on a computer. Mm. My senior year of, you know, in high school, even though my mother throughout the 80s and part of 70s had, was a computer programmer, I had no interest at all in what she did. It was at a terminal and she's looking at, you know, characters. So that's where it began. It was the high school art teacher. And it was learning how to use the computer to make art, not mm. anything else. And I didn't, when I got into, it got me into Pratt. What I didn't realize is that I was gonna have to learn programming until I got there and looked at computer. The mandatory class I had to take was computer programming. I was pissed. So if I had known that, I wouldn't have, <laughs> I wouldn't have come here, but that's where I began. Um, and I had to do it, um, but it wasn't something I was terrified of. It's just something I said I, I didn't want to do. Right. And when did you go, this is it? You know, when, when, when was your kind of aha moment of, I think I could express myself in my deepest way through digital media? I mean, you know, I majored in it and at Pratt, it was something that I did. And you know, I was talking to a high school student who, when I was doing a residency at Autodesk a couple of years ago, and she wanted to know how I could be at Autodesk and be a black woman. She really? was young, black. yeah. She, her teacher, who was who was Asian, everybody, everybody was taken aback by her question to me. She said, "I'm looking around. This is really cool stuff. I like it. I think it's cool. I wanted like to know how you could be here as a black woman." And it was kind of like, and I, whatever I said to her, she was happy with. And the teacher was like, you know, I, but it was like, whoa. She's a, and this is a student who wasn't even a senior. She was identifying. Something that was interesting to her, but also something that she didn't see herself in. But here I was tinkering around, doing welding one minute and 3D printing the next, you know, manufacturing size stuff. And I was probably the only, I was the only black woman on the floor. Wow. And sometimes the only black person on the floor and, and totally not in my own world, not even caring that, you know, there were people from all over the world in this space there, none of them were black. So they, we see it. When we're coming up, we see who's doing computer science. We see who's doing, um, you know, coding. We see who's doing, you know, science. And we say, okay, well, the, I don't see anybody like me, so that must not be something that folks like me can do. Right. And so, me being as risk taking as I am, because my teachers were risk taking, so well, I'm just gonna do it. Let's just go try it out. Right. You know, it's interesting. Um, it's so, you know, I talk about this a lot with Lonnie about how our experiences are so similar when we are artists who have heavy, you know, interest in science, science and technology and engineering, how oftentimes we're the only black people in the room. And, you know, a lot of the times the industries don't know how glaring that is to us, you know, and how we have to code switch in the room because um, we're expected not to be there. And, you know, this happens a lot when I talk about, you know, my experience in the Star Wars movies and being Jar Jar because um, everyone talks about how impressive the CGI was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they don't think about what my performance was as the code language for the CGI, right? Mm -hmm. They just think, oh, he just walked, mm -hmm. right? Oh, he just moved, he just, mm -hmm. it's not a thing. But, 
you know, the thing that I like to impress on on folks is like that code didn't exist until I walked. That code didn't exist until I moved. And because we're in the room, this is how the technology gets moved forward. What do you see as a way forward for us, um, specifically talking about digital media and being able to inject our voice into um, these spaces? How do we move forward? How do we get more of us in the room? So I, um, one of the things I accidentally ran into, I mean, I studied augmented reality in college. Mm -hmm. So they had an augmented environments lab at Georgia Tech. So I was like on the waiting list to get in to take a course because I was curious about it. I like this idea of layering images on a physical space with digital technology. And so I eventually got into this course called uh, it's like cultural heritage in AR. Um, of course, cultural heritage was for me like, okay, let's take that class. But that led also to the educational doing that for in, in classrooms. So I, I, I got all my AR um, out of my system by the time I left and graduated in 2014 and started a lab in, in Boston with high school students and the for high school. But the students were, and so we did, so I was thinking about layering with visuals, but then when the conductive paint and all that stuff came around, I said, well, then we can also use, um, we can sort of remix things with the, by just by our touch with the body. So feet, you know, with our bare hands, um, proximity, and um, in an in a art space, that's great. You could do theater with that. You could do dance with that. You could do visuals with that. So I was really pushing the students. And then they would kind of take off and do their own kind of st independent stuff that was really cool. But um, when I got to AP Computer Science, the course I taught, um, AP Computer Science generally, in 10 states or nine states, um, black and brown students refused to take the course, mm. even though they would take other courses. And they figured this out a few years ago that no you know, black and brown students were, and girls weren't taking these, the, the course. So they said, let's create a new AP computer science class, which is AP computer science principles, and let's make it open. So instead of it just being Python or uh, you know, Java, whatever, or C, let's make it open. So you could use any programming platform as your basis. And it could be, you know, with different ideas. So there's a theater, you know, teacher who decided to run with the course. So I said, well, so they approached me about, I said, well, I took this job to run a lab, not to teach every day computer science to a room full of kids. So <laughs> no, I don't want to do that. And then they try, you know, again, like that high school, when I was a high school student, it was that same, the same person kept coming back and saying, so well, if I write a curriculum around AP computer science principles and submit it to the college board, if they accept my arts-based focus, culturally relevant, culturally situated based, then I'll teach it. So the customer was like, yeah, we like it, um, <laughs> we can teach it. And so I was still very, very dubious about the whole thing. So they stamped it, um, certified it. You could teach this course. It's a year long course, four times a week, wow. every day, except for one day. So when I taught these kids, they came in as like, these kids were girls, they were mostly black and brown. I had like one white student, she was there because her boyfriend was in the class at first. She was great, but that's why <laughs> she was there. Mm -hmm. um, I had a couple of Asian students and you know everybody else was just black and brown. And I said, this is what they're trying to reach. This, this is the, this is, I mean, that's the demographics, demographics of the school. So it wasn't unusual, but for this class. 
these kids had not taken computer graphics, I mean, computer science before. The school hadn't run a computer science class. This is their first advanced placement computer science class, period. So I gave them the idea of the curriculum. I passed out the handouts. I said, well, we'll see. About half these kids are going to be back here tomorrow. So I remember coming into the, into the lab, STEAM lab, and they were all sitting there looking at me. Mm. And I peeked in and I looked, they're still, they're here. So the headmaster of the school saw me do it. She saw me peek in and then look shocked. And she was like, what's wrong with you? I said, they're back. She was <laughs> like, hello. And so none of these kids dropped this class. Um, but I was trying to find ways to bring what I was learning into the lessons, that into the activities, into the things they had to do. Um, finding deep dream for me was for the students. It's like you could learn artificial intelligence and make art using artificial intelligence using deep dream. So we did that, but then I was curious about it. So then I started to produce images and people gave me positive feedback. So I kept going. And then a couple of years ago, I said, I want to really understand artificial intelligence. Mm. Not as somebody, I mean, we, I brought in Amon Milner from Olin College and talked to them about how negative our AI was for black and brown people, how things like even Uber and Lyft could, you know, basically the right the drive driver could tag you, you know, you could be tagged as black and they may not pick you up. Right. Um, and he could talk about, cause he's a computer scientist, how that works. Um, I, but I wanna go deeper. I wanna know how AI functions. So Deep Dream was my entry point. And then one day I said, I'm gonna make a Deep Dream image I like every day for 365 days every day. Hmm. And I'm going to produce it. I'll put it on social media. I'll print it out. But I want to do it every day for 365 days to see what happens. So something happened. Something happened. I didn't really understand what was happening until somebody said to me, show me their mobile device and said, here's my deep dream. It doesn't look like your deep dream. What, what's wrong? What do I need to do to make my images look like your images? I said, I just use, I just use it like you do. So I don't know what you're talking about. So um, eventually someone wrote an article about the work and it's Afrofuturist um, person makes these images. And somebody in the comment section, when it got on Boing Boing, Corey Doctorow got it up on Boing Boing, somebody in the comment section was like, you're not using Deep Dream. So I was like, in the comment, yes, I am. And they were like, send me the link. So I sent them the link. They went there and came back. Well, you're, you're, you're not using the original Deep Dream from Google, Google's uh, mm -hmm. creator. You're using Gaddis, blah, blah, blah. He named the algorithm I was using. Right. So he said, here's the name of the algorithm you use to make those images called Deep Style. It's image style transfer. So there's academic papers about it, um, but he named the algorithm. Now I can find out more about the algorithm that I'm using instead of just using it. Right. And he said, the difference is between your images and maybe some of the people in this comments that are putting up their images is that the artist's hand took back over the process. That's huge. That's incredible. And when he said it, I said, hmm, most of the people that show me what they do in Deep Dream aren't artists. That's right. They just use stuff. They use apps they use, but they don't, I had to take light and color in college. I had to, I'm a painter. I, you know, I am a visual artist. So I make art. I can make art with other materials, with analog materials, with digital, with Photoshop. But I understand that stuff. So if it took back over the process, there must be something in the collaboration with AI that is change changes how I how images are produced. 
And when you think about that, we're thinking about, we can now go behind underneath the hood a little bit. So this, um, I have started using machine learning, um, coding for machine learning and learning how to write from scratch, uh, PoseNet is what we're using to understand how to use AI as it relates to performance. So this is getting a little bit in what you was when you're talking about Jar Jar. Um, so PoseNet, what I, and so I did this for teachers and my day jobs so that I just turned off my camera here and Zoom and I would, didn't bring in the window so they could see that I had programmed a, a, a dot to follow my nose around mm -hmm. and I would move and it would follow me. But then I said, if I put a book in front of my face, it's still gonna know where the nose is. Right. Because it's made some predictions about me, about my what, what, it's, what it's thinking is happening. And then you can actually see the predictions mm -hmm. in the code. You just, um, you know, go into the under and, and see how it's thinking. So this idea of learning um, as a human and then learning and understanding how the machine is learning together is something that's in very much about collaboration, but it's also about my awareness and technology that's producing it at the code level, um, how it's understanding performance. So we just got this grant with the Mozilla Foundation to do this for a Trinidad Carnival and studying performances in almost in a culture sustaining way. So it doesn't die out. So right. it's not just archival, it is, but it's also gonna hopefully come out with something brand new at the end as it learns. So it's just, uh, me and there's a team of uh, um, Fennell Noel, she's from Trinidad, an architect in Florida. And we have Valencia James, she's a dancer. Mm -hmm. And we all touch technology and computationally. Um, the fact that we're women of the diaspora from different, and I think um, Valencia is from Barbados. Right. So we're from different parts of the diaspora originally, you know, and we all delve into technology and specifically into computational type of stuff in our work. So we're going to collaborate to do that, create AI, uh, create AI around Trinidad Carnival to see what happens, to do that from a, a more uh, liberatory as opposed to surveillance and oppressive technology, but more um, anyway, that's the, the AI stuff. And and then of course I'm doing this uh, images for a show off called Futures for the Smithsonian in that's December. Brilliant. And you know, we often talk about how on the podcast we talk about how inherent bias in artificial intelligence is kind of running the show when it comes to machine learning and AI. Um, and this kind of goes along with what you're doing in your lab and getting young people interested in, in STEAM professions. Because a lot of times, uh, especially in underrepresented communities, young people don't take these courses because they don't see a future in them. And they don't believe that they could sustain themselves. They don't believe they can get jobs. And it's ironic because, you know, it's probably easier to get a job in AI than it is to be a rapper. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for some reason, the dream is to rap. Um, and you've actually found a way to be an artist, be a technologist, and have a career and a self-sustaining career. It's, it's quite entrepreneurial. Um, what do we do to get our young people to realize that they can do that? And, and how do we get your 
point of view as far as programming AI into the AI architecture? Like, how do we get your Trinidad Carnival, which I want to be in algorithmically or otherwise, how do we get the Trinidad Carnival into the iPhone artificial intelligence architecture? Well, I know um, hopefully we'll have an app at the end of this. Um, and we also have data set, data sets that we can actually bring into the AI, no matter what platform it is, it's pulling from the same data. So part of it is collecting the data. The other part of it is then training the machine and it could be a different type of machine each time. But the whole idea is that that's where the base is coming from. That's what it's pulling from. Um, Stephanie Dinkins has a project called Not the Only Ones. And she has a Sundance thing, a new frontier um, mm -hmm. now kind of coming out today or tomorrow. Um, and so she studies AI. She's an African-American woman, studies AI. But she told me, we, she has these AI assembly, uh, we had this uh, meeting and um, we were interviewing each other in front of everybody as part of an activity. And she said that they train the AI using her family's interviews and Toni Morrison, Sula, so literature and interviews. So at some points you can ask the AI questions in the gallery and it pulls from that data to answer it. So one of the questions that kind of threw everybody off at the end, someone asked the AI how it was feeling. How are you feeling today? And it was like, I feel horrible. I'm very depressed. You know, I feel like, and they were, she was shocked because these, for her, the stories that she was, the data was about black women surviving, thriving, but the AI said, oh, you going, that's horrible. I feel bad. You know, like it was something that they did not anticipate. Um, so you then look at the training, right? You look at the data set and think about how, you know, what's happening there. And that was something that I thought was really interesting. It was very interesting to me, but we're having this conversation. It's two black women having this conversation about training, you know, AI um, using our own data. Um, and so I really, I really like the fact that more and more of us are doing that. Mm -hmm. we're, we're doing, we're having those kind of conversations. For me, it's also been about taking no or taking the fact that those gates are closed and just doing my own thing anyway. Um, the book that I wrote that's coming out in August was initially rejected by the publisher and it was bad. The comp, I have an email, um, they said, we don't like your audience. Interesting. And my audience was very specific. Like, I want to reach African American, um, Indigenous, L Latino American scholars. We don't like your audience. That's not our audience. And we're MIT Press, and that's not who we serve. Mm -hmm. That's not who we sell our books to. So they're saying we don't sell our books to Black right people, up. Brown people. That's right. Um, wow. And so I thought, okay, MIT Press gone. Um, and I thought I threw that email away. I didn't, apparently. So then a new editor, different editor, and a colleague, a few years down, read something I wrote about game design and Afrofuturism and said, would you like to write a book for us? Mm -hmm. So I pitched the exact same thing to her. And she's like, oh, that's great. Do a proposal. And that's how the book got done. Wow. So, you know, a couple of years in between um, that rejection and then the acceptance and now a book is done. Uh, and we went through, you know, some, the peer review was really harrowing. It was People, again, like that argument with that professor over Prince and improvisation and trying to get people to understand, I don't want to build on your heroes. I don't want to build my series and my concepts in the way that I work on you. I want to build it on this. 
And that's been very difficult for people to understand, but it has to happen. And we have to keep pitching it. And we have to do that because there will be a time when that changes. That is probably one of the most powerful um, statements and arguments I've made, I've ever heard for doing what we do. How can we get that into the DNA of our children in these underrepresented communities that we want to build on? We do not want to build on your heroes. We no. want to build on us. We want to build on who we are. How do we get that in the in their DNA? How do we get that in their culture? I didn't have my book when I was a student. Mm. And I was told that if I, unless I could be, find credible authors, unless I could find credible scholars, then I was basically out of luck. Right. Um, so I wrote a book for people like I was as a student. And they're already starting to do that. I get emails from students now. I, you know, could you talk to our student class? Could you, they're looking for it. And they're trying to find ways to connect and looking for ways that can bring that. So we got to keep public, we got to publish. We have to make sure our stuff is credible. Um, and once it is, then more comes in. The more artists start working with AI, more artists are in those spaces. And then we see the representation and then it's, you know, something that inspires young people. But until that happens, it, it's just speculative and there's nothing wrong with speculating. I think that's where it starts. Even the machine learning speculates, that's how it works. But we also have to be at the level where we're producing, we're publishing. The publication part has missed us a lot. And so we have to get published and out there. I could have self-published a long time ago, but it, the reach wouldn't have been as broad. Right. I needed the you know kind of base that I have and the credibility that comes with MIT Press, when I talk about my publisher, people go, oh, dang, you know, oh, oh, what? oh, you know, there's a, there's like a, a thing with people. And uh, and that part is like, oh, I need to pre-order that right. um, versus other ways, which is still fine, but it gets lost in the, you know, the news cycle. It just gets lost. And in this case, it stays and it's something that young people can know to look at. And then they build on that. And that's the important part. They build on those theories, the concepts that I come up with, other people come up with, and then they do really incredible things. But it first has to be something they could say, this is a credible thing, it's, it's out there. That's phenomenal. Who inspires you? Like whose work do you go to anytime you feel stuck or you wanna, you know, if you're looking for something, another type of angle, if you're, if you're changing and, and you're evolving in your own work, um, somebody you'd like to talk about, like who, who are inspirations for you? I listen to music a lot. Um, I would say movies, but I'm so much going on right now in terms of movies and just stuff I forget. Um, <laughs> I'm not really, I saw, did I see that? Yeah, I think I saw that. Um, music. It's just music. And I listen to it a lot. I look, I listen to, I look at reactions to music. I look at, I, you know, I dig deep in that. Um, there are a lot of scientific concepts that really get me lit up like the you know, whole computational action and computational thinking. Um, I like coding, so the coding for art. Mm. I like you know getting to a point where I, I almost say I like coding, but I do coding to get to the art. Um, and that keeps me going because it changes. The, it's AR, everybody's doing AR and VR. I'm not doing that anymore, but I'm doing um, AI. 
Mm-hmm. And that changed because that's a new emerging thing that's really exciting to me. So art in general, but specifically music and um, some films and stuff every once in a while. Um, like Sundance, I'll go there virtually this, this week and hopefully be inspired by some new stuff by, based on what I see. Right, right. Well, Dr. Gaskins, it's been more than a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I would love to just keep a dialogue going. And um, anytime you have something, I would love to be able to just, you know, either talk about it or see it or, or hear about it from you. You're an incredibly inspiring person. You know, growing up in the Bronx um, and seeing Flash, you know, as I talked about in the beginning, Jack into the streetlights for power to, to power on his turntables. I didn't think that was a big deal. So when it came to actually trying to get power to something, the equivalent to jacking into the streets, streetlights was always a possibility, right? And I think you being out there, you doing what you're doing, you doing the work that you're doing and how, how, how special it is, I think it gives all of us that inspiration that what you do is a possibility. And I think that's what will get all of us into these new spaces because you're doing it. We believe that it can be done. And I appreciate that. And I I really thank you for being here. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Afro podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, Please contact me at Ahmed Best at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or at Ahmed Best on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist Podcast, please contact me again at Ahmed Best at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at Ahmed Best. Thank you all for listening again, and I'll see you next time.